Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're joined today by Maria Friedman. Hi, Maria. Hello. Maria, you are a major star in the West End of London. You made your Broadway debut recently, within the last year, in The Woman in White here in New York. Mm -hmm. But you're no stranger to America because you've been at the Cafe Carlisle three times now. This is your third appearance at the Carlisle. Yeah. We want to talk to you about that. You have a brand-new CD just out. And, of course, The Woman in White, we'll talk about that. But also all the various shows you've done in England and, and elsewhere, touring companies and whatever. So welcome to Downstage Center. Thank you very much. Third uh, engagement at Cafe Carlisle, uh, all Stephen Sondheim. And I had read somewhere that you said something to the effect of the reason why you do what you do is because of Stephen Sondheim, that mm-hmm. he's been an inspiration to you. Mm, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, I think most of us in this profession have, have a moment where we suddenly, our hearts connect with a particular composer or a particular lyricist or something. And for me, it was definitely Stephen Sondheim. I, I fell into this pr- profession. I, I come from a classical background of musicians, um, all very high achievers. My, my father was a concert, a concert violinist. He was the leader um, under Sir Thomas Beecham of the Royal Philharmonic. And my mother was a concert pianist. And my brother is a solo violinist. And I was being sort of... Uh, fast-tracked to be a cellist um, but my temperament really wasn't that of somebody who could sit in a room and practice for eight hours a day um, because it you know it takes enormous dedication and discipline to actually um, you know to, to get somewhere as a, as a classical musician and so I found myself sort of uh, finishing my school years and being directionless and I just joined a singing group for fun, not because I, I certainly wasn't trained or anything, and then found that I was earning a sort of an income, um, travelling around Europe in a in a, a sort of close harmony singing group. And I realised, well, it was better than working, uh, serving drinks in a bar, and it was better than... Um, so I did about 14 jobs in two years looking for the right one. But I didn't have a passion for it. Um, I, I don't know whether, cause, whether I felt it was not worthy of my family or not, but, or, or something, but I didn't have a passion for it. And then um, my father took me to Little Night Music, um, and I just remember tears falling down his face. You were how old at this time? I was 14. And is this the original English production? Yeah, yeah. Gene Simmons and... That's right. Yeah. So I, actually this happened before I finished school, but it was the... I remember pu- putting Stephen Sondheim in the same category as, as the, the, the musician, the, the composers that my parents played. You know, it didn't seem there was a separation between them. But then I went off and I did all sorts of wonderful shows, you know, Hammerstein and things. But it, I was back row chorus and nothing really sort of clicked. And while I was on tour, we came, before we transferred into the West End, the Palace Theatre, um, I went to see Sweeney Todd um, with a group of people. And I didn't have any great, you know, I, I knew I liked what I'd seen of Stevens online, but it was no way did, had it sort of changed my life or anything. But this felt like I was just being taken off in a rocket. I just remember just sort of sitting back in my seat thinking, oh, my goodness, there's something I can possibly do with what I have, my equipment, that's going to mean a great deal to me. And um, from then on, it took it took another seven or eight years before I actually got to work with him. Um, and it wasn't a sort of steaming ambition, but I knew that something had really affected me. And then I ended up doing um, Sunday in the Park with George, which still goes down as one of my favorite roles that I've ever played. And so that's how uh, you discovered Sondheim. How did Sondheim discover you? Sondheim discovered me in um, a gala 
uh, I was a replacement for um, somebody who was a huge gala in London at Drury Lane Theatre. Um, and it had um, uh, uh, Elaine Stritch and Eartha Kitt and Bernadette Peters and Angela Lansbury and B. Arthur. And I mean, just and, and on our side of the pond, a lot of our f- most famous people, Julie McKenzie and, and people. And um, somebody dropped out very last minute. And I'd been doing a sort of sequence of, of, of small, very fringe uh, events with a group of singers. And out of the blue, I got a phone call saying, could I come along and be a replacement? I couldn't believe it. And uh, and it was to sing, of all things, Broadway Baby, which I had never heard. I, I'm not somebody who collects music. So, mm-hmm. you know, I fall upon these things and they're completely fresh to me. And uh, um, I looked at the, the lyrics and so I decided I'd like to sing this girl just wearing a pair of jog- joggers and um, sneakers and a T-shirt because when I looked at the lyrics, I'd, I hadn't heard that it was this big orchestration and very ballsy kind of Well, thing. Broadway Baby is a song that often just builds, so you do it in your... In well, what, I, what I, I, I saw it um, as, as, a, as, as me, somebody who was longing to find her way in the theatre. Mm-hmm. So I went to the... They had an enormous orchestra, and I said, "Would it be possible if I just sort of sung it like this, no makeup, just sneakers?" Um, everybody else was in huge gowns and jewellery and everything, and I said, "And then just the piano, and in the last sixteen bars, just bring in the full orchestra." And he said, "Maria, it's going to be very difficult. We've got a huge orchestra here." Who's saying this to you? The director. Okay. And I said, "I know, but can I just do it for rehearsals? Just let me do it and and see if you like it. And if you like it, mm-hmm. then." Um, you know, uh, th- so we did it, and Steve was in the audience, and he apparently just went, "Who is that girl?" So that was that. And then he, I was um, later, very, very uh, soon after that, I was in a fantastic play at the National Theatre called Ghetto, which was all about um, uh, the Vil- Vilna Ghetto. And, and we should make clear because for people who think of you as a musical mm. performer, this was a play, yeah. a very heavy play. Yeah, yeah. And I was playing the lead in that, and. Um, and Steve came along and saw it and apparently sat in the box at the back just weeping for the entire thing. And then they were auditioning for Sunday in the Park with George and, and it was his suggestion that I come along, along and audition for that. But, of course, I knew none of this, so I thought it was a complete long shot and I auditioned seven times for that wow. job because I used to suffer terribly with nerves. I mean, <laughs> seriously, so I, I think I could hardly look up. It's funny because auditioning is so different to performing. Performing, you've done the work and you're lost in your own world, but auditioning, you're saying, look, I'm really, really good. And I think probably a lot of British people have difficulties with that. Well, you're kind of on the spot. You're being tested. It's terrifying. Yeah. It's terrifying because also you, I've realised, like, I now teach um, audition technique because I was so bad at it. It's a good place to actually come from. Mm-hmm. Um that you, you really can't guess what somebody wants, so you just have to be the very best of who you are. But it took me years to realize that. But when that. you were doing that, you said seven auditions, but, but mm. Mr. Sondheim was behind you. It was, I, but I didn't know that. You didn't know. Absolutely so you, not. You I didn't know that for years. Oh. Not for years, because, because I didn't become a friend with him until uh, probably about 15 years ago. But um, maybe, maybe t- 10 years ago, very close friends. Uh-huh. Um, so, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, he was he was a man that so you I had a godfather behind the scenes that you didn't realize absolutely. was so influential. Yeah, yeah, but also he's very good. He didn't make he did not push for me to get the job. He doesn't do that because he trusts the director and he trusts the team. I think it wasn't it wasn't him alone who said let's have Maria Freeman. It was it was done at the National Theatre where Ghetto had been on, so it was a natural thing that I would be being seen for it. But it was such a responsible 
uh, position and I hadn't had the sort of pedigree. I hadn't been to drama school. I hadn't done all those things. So it was a big thing to put on uh, a young girl's shoulders. And fairly quickly after that, as we as we go through your relationship with the, with the music of Sondheim, mm-hmm. about two years later, there you were doing another Sondheim musical, mm-hmm. Merrily We Roll Along. Mm-hmm. That that was that was really exciting because um, Steve chose actors that he wanted to go and work with, and to rewrite Merrily. So that was that was a thrill because we were in the rehearsal room with him as he was giving us new lines and new bits of songs. Well, I was going to say it's a fairly famously rewritten and rewritten yeah. uh, work. Uh, so, but when you were involved, it really was was going through a lot of changes. Huge amount, huge amount, and uh, and and think the, the the pieces stayed pretty well, like the way that, the, as he finished it there, he was very pleased with that version. Now that was in England. Yeah, was that before or after the American version? Yeah, uh, much which, much after the much, original much American after. production. Much the original after. American production was yeah. roughly 1981, yeah. and you were doing this in 1992. Thank you very much. Uh, That's the answer. Okay, <laughs> very good. Well, when when you first met Sondheim, other mm. than him being behind you when you were, you were uh, doing this uh, Broadway baby, mm. what was that first meeting like? Oh, tongue, tongue. I mean, I, I, as I said, I used to suffer a lot with nerves, so uh-huh. I don't think he ever knew who I was for, uh-huh. for a long time. I was this rather, rather boring person who looked with quite wide eyes and sort of scaredly at him. Um, what, I, what I loved, though, I think the reason that we could really engage is that... Um, I remember this, yeah, just come back to me now, actually. Uh, when we were doing Sunday in the Park with George, we were all gathered um, towards the end of rehearsals after a, a dress rehearsal for Steve to give us notes. Um, do you call them notes? when they, yeah. yeah. Yeah, to give us notes. And I sat there, you know, along with all the my, my rest of my colleagues, didn't have a pen, didn't have a paper, any paper, anything like that, just waiting with notes. And he just bombarded me with about 21 different things. And... Uh, Every single one of them just locked in my head. They all made so much sense. Everything he says makes so much sense. Obviously, he wrote the thing. Mm-hmm. But the way he communicates with actors is perfection. He can unlock a part of you because he, he understands what it is you're trying for and how to enable you to do it. He's, I mean, every actor I know that has worked with him says he's just unbelievable at just getting that bit more from you. So we did the, the, the next run. And uh, he came into my dressing room and he said, I was going to be so mad with you. He said, I was sitting there and I was getting crosser and crosser because I was giving you more and more notes. You didn't take one of them down. And I thought you were going, you were being really arrogant. He said, and then you got every single one of them right. And I said, well, I never, t- I never write down notes because if they hit in your heart and you know your piece well enough... You're actually, they are the little bits you're looking for. They're the little bit of missing jigsaw. And he was able to see them. And I was like, so relieved for each one that he was putting down. It's like, oh, yes, oh, yes, locking it in, locking it in. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that's when he first thought I can be friends with this person because <laughs> that he, he'd mis- misread me. He thought I was arrogant. I wasn't at all. I was just excited and sort of taking it all in. So when he gives you notes, is it how to interpret his music, his lyrics? Is it other things? What, what, what yeah, I mean, it can, it can be absolutely everything. I mean, he will never say louder, softer, slower. I mean, he'll expect you to have known that what it is. One of the things that Steve does, which I think is so reassuring, and other composers I work with, you know, they, they, they won't change a key, they won't change a rhythm, they won't change anything. Steve, does, Steve wants interpreters. He's a theatre writer. He gives you a fantastic structure. He gives you a structure, a musical structure and a lyrical structure that is the, is the stuff that you pour the humanity into. Um, but he wants to see 
what you have to offer. He's uninterested in it being the same as everybody else. So if you t take a total spin on it, he's thrilled because he's a theatre writer. He wants it living. He wants the participation of an actor. And he's one of the few people I know who loves actors. But it's very interesting because you said that you really come out of a musical background. Your training was musical. The family was musical. Where and how did you develop your acting chops, which obviously are considerable? Um, well, from I think from feeling a failure um, because because I hadn't had any official training. I used to watch and study in every rehearsal and quite critically. I mean, to, but no one harder on themselves than me with myself. But I always used to think, you know, oh, that's interesting how they're doing that. Listen, I had some wonderful people to watch at the National Theatre. You know, they're probably the best actors in the world. Um, I would I would study them. And then I would put myself in a situation, you know, sometimes I'd be understudying. This is before I did things. And I was not good. I was not good. I was, I, no, I wasn't bad. I had great instincts. You got cast at some level. Yes. I mean, when I, but what I'm saying is, is that it really took a lot of, a lot of uh, me making myself believe in myself. Mm. Um, that that allowed me to be able to interpret some of the um, roles. The better the role is scripted, the better an actress you can be. And I had to learn on some pretty rough scripts because um, a lot of musical scripts are not great. They're not great. And so you have to really kind of find your muscles to to edge your way from a song into a scene and to make it... It just is practical practice is the short answer it's, it, you know I got I got better and better and I intend to be getting better and better and I'm not but I would assume part of it's more than just practice part of it's also instinct and gut and just obviously you know, getting obviously. a feeling for the work well I like human beings I uh -huh. mean I understand it's a very trite thing to say but I really do like the human race and I like odd people and quirky people and cranky people and uh, you know I don't I don't have a great deal of judgment on them and I just I, I enjoy them so I think if you enjoy people you're always looking for the connection in yourself, aren't you, with, with roles. I mean, for me, anyway, I'm always looking, I'm looking for the empathy that I feel towards a character I'm watching on stage or how I can relate to that particular situation. I think most of us, for the most part, can empathise with most things that each other go through. Well, then tell us, as we continue the discussion of your relationship with, with Mr. Sondheim, mm. uh, how you connected to the role of Fosca and Passion. Oh, I, I was, it's, it's definitely one of the top three things that I've ever done um, well it started off I, I heard one chord of, um, fos uh, of passion and I wanted to be in it it's the wonderful it's, the, it's the, the, the drawn out chord as she comes down the stairs to meet the writer and it was so eerie and so taut musically and it broke my heart and I didn't even know what it was um, and uh, everybody wanted me to play the pretty part of Clara um, and uh, I was completely uninterested in doing something as, as uh, you know, not that she's two-dimensional. I just didn't want to do it. I wanted to do something really rich. And um, uh, I started, I had a very short rehearsal period um, with the physicality, which I, I then realised I had done it the wrong way around because I started off sort of wondering how she felt, how she walked, how she sat, how she, you know, because people scream, it says in the script they scream at her. So I worked with a makeup woman and she gave me this huge birthmark that went down my face and down my neck and enormous eyebrows and this thinning wig and, I mean, really, I mean, I looked quite extraordinary. And then I uh, 
as I got to start playing in the previews, I realised that actually that was completely the wrong thing to do. So I took off the um, the scars and I took off everything and just left my... and realised that, that, that the ugliness came from this bile inside. And when Steve came back after the first preview and he sort of saw it about six days later, he said, oh, good, you've lost your training wheels, <laughs> which was um, exactly what it felt like, that, that I had to actually believe... Um, that the ugliness was outside, but actually the whole point of that story, it it isn't about her ugliness. I mean, it isn't it isn't about her physical ugliness. It's about this inability to feel straight. She's corrupted internally through all sorts of things, and as that begins to settle and subside, like so, then then she becomes somebody who who can love in a normal way instead of an obsessive compulsive way, and when she can love normally. It's possible for her to receive love, and that's that's the story. It's not about, oh my God, she's so she's such a dog that nobody could possibly love her. It isn't about that. And I, I you know, I mean, the amount of people that I know, you know, who might have a, a big nose or something, after they speak to you for two minutes, you don't notice a big nose. You notice their souls and their hearts, and that's the whole point about passion. It's all about hearts and souls and love, and um, and that's the other thing people never really associate Steve with is that he writes passionate love songs he writes about love that's one thing very interesting in your your carlisle performance at the very beginning of the program you make that statement that these are love songs mm-hmm. you don't normally associate sondheim with love mm-hmm. songs and this so you start off the show with don't look at me then some well-known songs like broadway baby and uh, you know sunday in the park with george is medley of those songs but also some lesser known songs um, like from evening primrose mm-hmm. which is not even a show it was, it was a television program uh back in 1966 so a song called I Remember the Sky an interesting uh, mix of Sondheim music yeah I, I mean the, I've, I've taken his his life from when he was 19 up to the, the latest thing that he's written so stuff he wrote in college and and, and um, songs that he's no one will have heard before because they, they never made it into production but I haven't just done, you know when people do bottom drawer stuff quite often it's because those things should have stuck in the bottom drawer and not come out stuff in a drawer for a reason exactly yeah. I mean but 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 um, but the reason I've chosen these each one of them shows such a different side to Steve's extraordinary ability and um, so you, 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 people can't believe it when they come out of the Carlisle. You know, people say, "I didn't know. I didn't know that there was that breadth." Because they think he's clever and sharp and witty and 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 edgy. And in fact, he's just he's he's all those things. But he's 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 a soulful, heart, heartfelt man. You also explain you use the term love song, not necessarily mm. romantic love, but love right. of theatre, love of other things love as well. Love of life, love of words, love of love of breath, love of leaves, love of whatever, yeah. Well, in developing the program at the Carlisle, and I understand you're going to be doing a full evening of Sondheim songs in London later this year, do you now develop these programs with him? You say you've become mm. friends. Mm. So it's in consultation. Mm. It's not you're just deciding I'd like to do these songs. No, absolutely. Um, Peter Jones, who um, works with Steve and has done for um, 20 years, um, he, he's also a friend of mine. We, we actually worked in Steve's house doing this. And so we've got the archives there, which is, you know, that's, that's something else, isn't it? So, you know, sit upstairs playing and he pops in and says, hello, do you want a cup of tea? <laughs> Goes out again. He, what he doesn't do is he doesn't interfere. He doesn't, um, he, he would hate to, you know, he would hate me to feel 
on the spot, but what he does is offer me wonderful work that wonderful little secrets that I you know that I'm very grateful for. So where are you heading with the program this summer? Will that be an extension of the show at the Carlisle yeah. that you're going to expand out? Yeah, what what I mean I, I my working title for 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 this um show was Maria's Chunks because <laughs> um because I wanted to explore longer passages in cabaret what often happens well, always happens is you sing one song then you sing another song then you sing another song you sing, the audience is expected to sort of keep with you for three minutes and clap and go into lots of little worlds which is wonderful it's a wonderful thing but i was much more interested in sort of giving a, a little flavors of concerts or little so that you actually put the hook in and took them on a longer emotional journey because three minutes is great but if you can actually get a, an emotional journey of 12 minutes which really can take you through a few more colours uh, and it seems to be working very well and so that's what we're going to be doing we're going to be doing a lot of the musicals that I've been in I'm going to be d- developing longer arcs so that we get maybe Mary's perspective in her life in Mer- Merrily We Roll Along or we get Dot's perspective of what it was like to be in love with somebody who couldn't commit this great artist George Seurat and the decisions she had to make as a woman in you know 1890s uh, pregnant those sort of those sort of things so it's a real story it's a real arc and you follow somebody along to to a conclusion but there's also going to be a difference in scale because certainly when you're working at the Carlisle you're a very intimate very close quarters room mm-hmm. when you're doing it this summer it's a larger venue is it not does that change either the material you perform or the way in which you perform it it's a good question um i think you know there's some things that i may may change once i get into the theater um i can do i can do more emotional stuff on a big in a bigger space um and slightly quirkier stuff in a bigger space. In the middle of Sunday in the part with George, I had a whole section where I was singing as George the painter, singing all that red, 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 you know, all that bit. And I couldn't imagine sitting in the Carlisle with them eating their creme brulee, you know, going red, 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 red. They're all thinking having having a nervous breakdown. But um, it is a different thing when you have a captive audience and I can light it and we can have the picture of, uh, you know, Sunday in the back and uh, all those things will, they they aid the performance. Um, The sound system will be better than in the Carlisle the you know the orchestra will be slightly bigger but I don't think the the experience will be any better because I think the Carlisle's this magic room when it's full and uh it's it's I think it's very special to be also my my two musicians they are sensational I've got a wonderful cellist uh, Mary Dorman and Nick Archer who's been working with Steve for you know 15 years or something um and so, uh, you know, I have extreme... To be that intimate with that sort of musicianship, I think, is is very exciting. What's well, interesting, virtually everybody who performs in a club performs with a pianist, not too many with a cellist. No. Maybe a bass player, maybe a drummer, maybe a sax player, but not too many cello players. No. Why a cellist? Well, it's another voice for me. I mean, number one, I was a cellist, so I, I always hear that. But it, I think I sing as a cellist, and it was uh, I wanted a counterpoint. I wanted another voice. I didn't want a support for the bass, which is what the double bass does, and I didn't want rhythm because Steve does that perfectly well in his with his vamps with the with his you know the piano. So a bass would have just actually been there just to sort of pin down the bottom line, and I really wanted to have something which was, um, I suppose, more classical in a way. Um, just, uh, but but the cello is another voice. It's a counterpoint to the melody. Coincidentally, uh, not only appearing at the Carlyle, you also have a new CD coming out uh, called Now and Then, Maria Friedman, Now and Then. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess you've 
made it available at the Carlisle, but it had not yet been available to the public. But we we have a copy here. Very uh, good. I'd love to invite you to choose one of the songs from it. It's about, what, 14 different songs Ooh, on it. Well, and some interesting titles, like mm-hmm. I Happen to Like New York, The First Cut, and a bunch of others. If you'd well, like it's to really interesting because this, this, of course, has been out in England, and it's the first time it's been released in the States. Uh-huh. Um, so some people say, oh, I've already got that. Um, but, but they got it because uh, nice friends of mine used to put it in shops in America. <laughs> or you could get it from the Internet in England. But now we can actually get this um, here, and I think it's on... Amazon and I think it's on you know all the other sites that you can normally get it on um, I'm really torn whether to play Children and Art which Stephen Sondheim actually accompanies me on or whether to play I think I'll do it. I'll go for a completely passionate one um, <laughs> which is uh, a, a French song written by Michel Legrand and I had um, I, I never want to sing in foreign languages because I think one of the great things about words and music is people should all understand them. So to sing in, sing the song in French would not have been fair. So I had a translation done by a man called Jeremy Sams, and it's called Now and Then. And it's um, I remember the first time I heard heard it, I just had to lie down on the floor because I thought it was just so beautiful. Now and Then, that's a song from Maria Friedman's new CD, in this country at least, new to Americans, Maria Friedman, Now and Then, interesting compilation of songs. How did you go about putting together the the selections on the CD? Um, just songs I like. Uh-huh. Um, the Broadway Baby, as I told you, was the first song I ever sung, and then I Happened to Like New York was something that I sung in a concert, um, and I thought it was such an unusual Cole Porter song. And interestingly, those songs... They were full of my dreams about coming to New York, and of course I've done it now, so it was lovely. But listening to them again as somebody who hadn't been there, and now as somebody who has been there, I mean, it just it, it really moves me about dreams that they can come true. Um, and I've always loved, you know, some of them, like In the Sky came from Ghetto, which was a, the show I was in, about, the, and it was written by a 12-year-old boy who lived, worked and died in the Vilna Ghetto and he wrote as he answered um, they, they used to have symposium and, and uh, songwriting compositions while everybody was being mowed down Left, you know, this extraordinary Yiddish theatre group encouraged people to keep making music and this little boy wrote that song and it, every time I sing it I mean I didn't do a concert for 15 years without including it in something so it had to go on the CD you know, it means a huge amount to me well, you talk about coming to New York. You've mm-hmm. been here several times to perform at the Carlisle, but mm-hmm. of course, this this season was the first time you were here actually in a production. Mm-hmm. Was the Woman in White, of course? Um, was the experience of being in here, being here in New York, different? Being a part of a full company as opposed to being here I, as a solo. Performer. I loved it. Well, I mean, the, the company were incredibly close. Um, and we should acknowledge you. You certainly had some health challenges. I during certainly this had some health challenges. But, yes, I got uh, diagnosed with breast cancer on my third pre- preview. Um, you, uh, you know, nothing turned out the way I thought it would, but it was all good. Uh, it, it turns out to be all good. Lots of shocks. Lots of you know, a few dark hours. Um, a lot. A lot of joy. Um, my children were with me. My sister was producing the show along with um, Bob Boyer who, and Bill Haver who looked after... I mean, I can't tell you the care I got. It was it was almost embarrassing how, how, how cared for. And the cast rallied around me and um, I was back on stage, you know, five days after... Uh, I was rehearsing five days after the operation and 
back performing seven days after, so it's almost like it didn't happen. But was the experience now of an American company, because other than yourself and Michael Ball, it was an American company, Mm -hmm. was it a different experience than working uh, in musicals in England? It was very, very different. Um, I found it very liberating because I've been obviously working in London for for years, and it was almost like I could... um, I was freer to be myself. People expect you to be something when they've, you know, when if Bernadette Peters walks into a room in in on on a Broadway stage, there's a certain sort of is is Bernadette Peters, and yet she's this glorious, very you know, easygoing, real woman. Um, It's not that I have, but people people expect a certain sort of behaviour from somebody who's been doing principal roles for 30 years I suppose they don't expect you to be one of the gang um, and so there's, it's not that I, I got on with everybody in the London cast hugely and we had a tea club and make cakes and everything like this but in in New York I was completely um, enveloped with sort of there's something about Americans that that respond to ta- responds well to talent I mean they like it it's not threatening. It's something that they want to applaud. It's something they want to admire. And I think in England, there's a deep suspicion about somebody who's done very well. And so you don't have the same openness um, as as you do in, in New York. People really say, well done, and they mean it. And in America, in England, quite often they go, well done. I wish it was me. <laughs> so it's slightly, slightly less... Uh, well, George, we're not. We're not. I'm, that makes me sound like the casts are less than friendly because they aren't. They're, they're 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 wonderful. But I found it a very liberating experience being here. Well, you London. had originated the role of Marion Halcombe in in London, mm-hmm. the London version of mm-hmm. Woman in White, and then you brought the role over here. Any significant changes in in the way you interpreted the part between the London, with the British audience have expectations of you in London, no real expectations in this country. No, or was it I pretty mean, much I, the same. It, it was pretty much the same. Um, it was pretty much. I mean, I was I was given a, a fantastic, uh, warm reception for 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 Marion. I I used to, you know, I was I felt very very happy with with the, what what came back every night, um, and uh, no, I it was it was great. I mean, it came to a, a very sudden end, as as we all know, uh, literally two weeks' notice, which was incredibly surprising. Um, and as I was in the middle of my cancer treatment and away from home and. That, that was that was scary. That was not the best. Uh, well, you had, of you had been slated to take a to take a leave, and just about the time you were supposed to take the leave is when the show ended. Absolutely, so, I had yeah. to, I had to extend. I was I was I had to do another ten days during treatment mm-hmm. to to not let the company down. You know, mm-hmm. and I was I was I was tired by then. I was very very tired. And coincidentally, the London version ended almost within a couple of days of the same. Well, we knew they'd got their notice, mm-hmm. but they, that they'd lasted nearly two years. But, uh, About nineteen yeah. months or something like that. Something there. Like that. Yeah, much, yeah, much, much longer. longer. Than. Well, much longer. What, what, what do you think was the problem was with the American audiences? They just didn't seem to respond to it. I guess. I don't know. You know, I, I, I really. It's so difficult. We're the last people to be able to tell you why things don't work, um, because the, mostly people are very nice to you, and you've got the people outside the stage door, and they're all saying they've had a very nice time. So, mm-hmm. um, our houses weren't nearly as bad as 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 we thought they were going to be to have to be pulled off so mm-hmm. I, I think it was a matter of the drowsy chaperone coming in you know uh, the, uh, on the flight path and Co- we coming went, into the, in, into yeah, the same theatre I think so I think well I think there were a lot of shows hovering waiting to come in and we mm-hmm. weren't doing well enough to keep mm-hmm. us on yeah. and it was a matter of that you have to get them in now or mm-hmm. 
they'd miss that slot and go to another theatre, probably. I mean, but this is guesswork. I've no Mm -hmm. idea. And apparently it's doing fantastically and it's a wonderful show and, you know, fantastic. I mean, that's the way it goes. It's much more cutthroat over here than it is in... in, um, Is it? Oh, yeah. I mean, you would... I don't think Andrew would ever not last a year in London. I mean, I really did. You know, when I decided to take my children out of their schools and re-school them and re-house us, we, we really did bank on a year being mm-hmm. here. We mm-hmm. really did. Not not um, three days cancer and then a notice. <laughs> it mm. wasn't quite what I expected. But, you know, it... it it's it's um it all turns out it all turns out all right you know and then you kind of put put the Carlisle thing together kind of the last minute you had your time available you were here well it wasn't it wasn't I think somebody found out that well not somebody everybody knew I was suddenly free and the Carlisle had been very loyal to me and wanted me to do a season there anyway and I couldn't because I was doing Women in White it was one of those wonderful things I think Eartha Kitt wanted to uh, transfer her dates to another day and there I was and and Sony wanted me to be in this country because I was releasing my CD and it was like the angels t- decided to smile for a bit and I, <laughs> I, I took it happily I thought that I deserved a bit of smiling for a change <laughs> so. There's a bit of irony in the fact that in looking at many of your most acclaimed roles mm. over in England you were performing in American musicals and then you finally came to America and you were performing in a quintessentially English musical mm-hmm. they don't get more English than, than Andrew Lloyd Webber mm. The experience of, of doing these American pieces mm. in England, was was any of that a particular challenge, especially since you hadn't spent lots of time over here? Obviously, they were in different periods and different composers, but looking at certainly Ragtime, Witches of Eastwick, which was a new musical but by American writers, though it premiered there, uh, Lady in the Dark, a classic American musical. I'm just wondering about your, your take on that. Well, it's, it's interesting that... that um, there is sort of no ownership, is there, with a musical? Because it, it doesn't belong to America or anything. What what you write is a good story. And you write round, you know, the, 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 if you look at the characters I've played, they're all rounded characters. Except, you know, they're, they're, they're full-bodied women um, and with, with brains, all of them. Um, and... Uh, with the exception of Suki and Witches of Eastwick, but 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 she was meant to, you know, I mean, she was a journalist, and so she was meant it was that's a comedy and everything. So it was that was slightly more two two dimensional. But you know, um, the 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 situation of Dot, she was French. We played her with an English accent, and you know, it's about post impressionism painting. It's about loving an artist. It isn't an American story. Um, the I think Lady in the Dark, the Kurt Vile thing, was actually quite essentially American in terms of the fact it was the first um, musical to be written without an overture and you had um, an intellectual woman who was running a business uh, during the war and, uh, and, and it dealt with psychiatry. So I think that was very, very American in its flavour and I... Um, it's really not for me to judge whether I succeeded in that or not. It would be for somebody else. But I did. It, I, I enjoyed finding that sensibility because it, obviously it was very different for me. Except I am a woman who runs my own business and um, has had some therapy. You know, so it's not so far away. All these stories are not so far away. If they're well written, there's always a point where you can pull them right back into something that you understand. Fosca feeling. Fusker is an Italian, you know, she feels sad and unlovable, something I'm sure every one of us in the world has sometimes felt. It, it, it doesn't belong, as long as it, the production stays true to the story, I don't think it belongs anywhere, it just belongs on the, th- on, on the stage, anywhere, in any country. 
Well, in this country, you know, we're familiar with British musicals, mostly through Andrew Lloyd Webber, since most of the British musicals were written by him. Uh, what is the, the UK, the British, the European reaction to American musicals when they are performed we in, love in London? Them. I mean, we, 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 we're in awe of them. Um, we think you Americans do it a lot better than we do, and uh, generally you do, I have to say. Um, but it's a history thing, you know. When we hear, we're, we're getting there. When I hear um, the, the black community in our country and the gospel singers, they're coming up now. But we didn't have a history of it, you know. We had this kind of very strict uh, church-like choral singing that's per- pervaded our society. It doesn't have the same joy, uh, and doesn't have the same soul as uh, the black music in, in your culture. And, um, uh, you know, it, uh, it's the same with me and Jewish music. You know, I, 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 I feel it very, very deeply, but it, it, it sort of has permeated into the pop culture through Gershwin and all, all those great composers. It's now become sort of a sensibility that we all understand. But it, you have it, musical theatre in, in England is actually very new in comparison to Broadway. We're, we're getting there, and we do it differently. We do it differently, but it's not, I wouldn't say, as I or, wouldn't or say. At least the American style musical, yeah, we do, I guess. Yeah, yeah. because that, that's just so unashamedly joyous mm-hmm. and effervescent and celebrating everything. We're, we're slightly more reticent as a people, I think. To go off on a totally different tack, you mentioned earlier your sister, mm-hmm. Sonia, who is a theatrical producer, mm-hmm. who's producing... Woman in White, currently uh, Faith, Healer. Faith Healer, which just opened. Um, and you have done a couple of shows, I guess one would say for your sister, some would say with your sister. Mm-hmm. But what is the experience of having your sister running the show that you are in? And, and how have you, because for a long time you you'd not worked together. You were running mm. on parallel tracks in the same yeah. field. Um, you know, it can, it, it, when she's totally in control, it's fantastic. When she's not totally in control, it's terrible. Um, because she feels she can't get in there and uh, it, it, she feels it's very difficult for her to represent me like she would any other member of her cast because it looks like um, that she's partisan or favourite being. So in terms of negotiations and everything, she backs completely out, um, which leaves me sort of in a very odd situation where you, you don't know who it is you're fighting because you know, mm-hmm. fighting's the wrong word but when you're negotiating that's the toughest bit you know it's, it's really really it's hard mm-hmm. and um and with my sister you know i can just say this is what i'll do it for she say okay fine you can't you've got to do it for that go okay fine that's it done but when it's somebody else involved and there's a third party so it's co-producing it's it's i i didn't enjoy that experience at all and has there been a case of you going to your sister saying i'd like to do this show or you find out there's a show she's doing and no, it's how never does it that way. evolve? No. Um, I, I, I was doing the concert of Ragtime in Carlisle, in the Carlisle, and not Carlisle. It was in Carlisle in Wales, and um, I. It was just a one-night concert that we were doing to open this St David's Hall, and we were rehearsing it. And I just thought, this is ridiculous that this is only going to be one night. It's so beautiful. Um, so I phoned her up and said, "Get to this dress rehearsal because I think it's something you'd like to do." With or without me. I just had a baby who was 10 weeks old, so it wasn't that I was looking for work. I was just doing a one-day concert. Um, and uh, she couldn't, but she made she flew to Wales to see it. And by the interval, she'd decided she was going to produce it, and she went straight to the people and produced it. That's the only time that that's happened when I actually um, phoned and said, get there. And, and um, But apart from that, you know, I, I, I do concerts all over the world, and 
there's no one better to produce them in England than my sister because um, I, I trust her. She loves me and she loves what I do. And she's the best at what she... She really is the best at what she does. And we, we phoned up... We woke my mum up the other day at 5 o'clock in the morning. Well, we tried to. She, she didn't pick up the phone. Because we on Friday, um, I went to the Faith Healer first night and she, they got their great reviews and it was a phenomenal review. So we were all cheering Sonia and everything. And Sonia said quick, come out here. And we went out into this little courtyard and she'd set up a laptop. You were standing out and in I'd Bryant got, Park calling. Yeah, I was at the I'd, opening night and saw you, you over there. Yeah, well, I'd got, um, I'd got my good review in the New York Times as well. And she'd got her good re- uh, review in the New York Times. And mm-hmm. we wanted my mum to say, wow, that's amazing. So we phoned up the next day. She said, oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> the two because girls. you're not the concert performers they <laughs> raised you to be? I don't know. No, she's, she's pleased. She's always much more happy so, so, to see sounds that like that. Oh, that's nice, yes, dear. Yes, that's nice. That's <laughs> Thanks nice. Thanks for calling. Anyway, yeah. Just <laughs> but we just thought the two girls getting that, you know, two two English girls being, having gone through Women in White together, you know. I mean, just it was a sort of an odd thing. You know, Women in White completely collapsing and then literally, how many months later? Two, mm-hmm. under two. We're both back in New York doing different things that we've both put together since then. I think I think it's a testament to sort of, um, it's not what happens, it's what you make of it, you know. I'd like to play another one of your songs, and uh, we have a couple of choices. I'll, I'll leave this up to you. You have your oh. CD that we just played a song from. You're on the Woman in White cast recording. You're on the Witches of Eastwick cast recording. I'd prefer to do another one from my CD. From I your prefer- own CD? Yeah. Plug in your CD. Yeah, well, why not? Okay, those why that are in the past. Move forward, I always say. Okay, Move on. Um, I'd like to do The Man with the Child in His Eyes. Okay, tell us a little bit about the song, then we'll play it. Um, it's a Kate Bush song. Um, one of the things about this CD is that all the arrangers are uh, just brilliant. We've got Jonathan Tunick and Michael Sarabin and the world, world-class arrangers. And the reason that this album used to be called by Special Arrangement when it was done originally, it was a, it was a show. And the reason I did it was because when you sing a song, when you're just singing it on the piano, it can be wonderful. And then when you get an orchestrator in touch with it, if they, they can make something which is beautiful sublime and they can ruin it they can do you know they can do whatever so I picked my favorite orchestrators in the world and I just phoned them up and said hardly I really haven't got a huge budget but if I gave you a choice of orchestrating anything any way you wanted here you know here's a list of songs loads of songs they picked one and then they orchestrated it and this um the Man with the Child in His Eyes, it, you all, all know with Kate Bush, but it's a delicious orchestration. So it's just one of those things. It's very hypnotic and it feels like the feels like nighttime and the sea and dreaming and it's I love it. That's Maria Friedman from her C D now and then, Maria Friedman now and then, and that's the man with the child in his eyes. Well, Maria, we've seen you now once on Broadway in The Woman in White, and you now you're at the Carlisle through uh, June 3rd. Do you think we'll see you back on Broadway in the future? I would say most definitely, yes. Well, like, I can now because I've got my little visa. So, What, 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 what has taken so long to get you to Broadway? Well, family. I've got two children, uh-huh. and um, uh, I, I, one of them has special needs, and it was very difficult to, for a long, long time to ever go out of London because I wanted him to be settled and mm-hmm. and to have a, a, a proper life and then um, you know I suddenly realised that I, I had been asked to come to Broadway twice before um, and had said no 
for various reasons, but nearly always. I mean, it was it was predominantly my beautiful Toby, um, and he's now he's really fantastic. And he he came and he adored it. And I got him private tutors here. It's a bit of a, a bit of a nightmare, you know. He got a bit homesick. It's a huge thing taking children away from their schools and their friends. It's a huge thing. Mm-hmm. It's a huge thing. And I didn't actually. I mean, I had that all my childhood. You know, nine different schools. So it took it it, it took my sister to be producing something for me to say yes. Mm-hmm. And um, she really really wanted me to do it when it was going to come along and and I you know if when you're all 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 us parents out there you know you 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 have to think of your children first for so so much of the time and this time I thought actually I I I I would like this adventure and it turned out to be not the adventure I wanted but thank god I came here because I got the best health care ever here you know I was seen in two days and it just does seem to be that I came here for a very good reason Sometimes those things just work out. It just worked out, yeah. yeah. Well, now that you've been on Broadway, you're literally a Broadway baby for real. I know. Well, we've... baby, no. <laughs> well, I wish, I wish. <laughs> and Maria Friedman, we thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. Thanks, Maria. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.com. AmericanTheaterWing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.